positive feedback loop. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Positive Feedback Loop podcast. This is your host, Ray, and here joining me is Stephanie. Hello, everyone. And Luis. Hello, everyone. And as you may already know, our podcast talks about different topics that we find interesting, and we often find ourselves disagreeing with each other on them. And today, we'll be talking about online education, what the future of education looks like in the world, and and what in the world is a MOOC? What's a MOOC, guys? M-O-O-C. So a MOOC, M-O-O-C, stands for Massive Open Online Courses. And when I was first introduced to the idea of MOOCs, it was when I worked at MIT. And Harvard and MIT had actually joined forces uh, forming edX, edX.org which is basically a coalition of universities who offer their courses online and tens of thousands of people sign up for these courses. And it's been ex- edX has been expanded to many more universities. Many, many universities across the United States are now offering MOOCs through that platform. And there are other platforms like Coursera and Udacity, paid or unpaid, that people can register for and take courses online. And actually, I've taken a course on a MOOC myself. I have not done edX, but I did take a course, uh, or actually a series of courses in Coursera. Back, it's 2012, I want to say? No, yeah, shortly after graduating college, I was unemployed, so I was I did a few courses on uh, Coursera. I did a course on R and some other programming stuff, and it was interesting. Although... I will say my experience is that I think, with them, as with the most users of MOOCs, the vast majority of courses actually go undone. Like people generally tend to just barely touch the courses. Right? Do you have any experience with MOOCs? Actually, yeah, I do. Similar to you, Luis. While right after college, I or after well, my first job, I had some time off, and I did. I think I did four or five different MOOCs courses. Uh, I did one on the introduction to law and economics. I did one on science, technology, and society in China, which I thought was interesting. I also did one on understanding ADHD through the lifespan. And they were all taught by quite prestigious professors at different universities, including University of Pennsylvania, the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and Wesleyan University. And I completed those. And I also took a class on neuroethics. That that was really interesting as well. So I find that the course subjects on these MOOCs are generally interesting. I don't know why it just feels more interesting than courses you may be assigned to when you are enrolled in a traditional university. Do you get that feeling? I know, I know that they're the same classes. It just feels more oh, wow, now I'm going to learn something really interesting kind of feeling. I wonder if it's just because it's new to you, uh, because it's coming from a university that you haven't been at, and so they label their courses differently or something. Because I know that a lot of online courses are just a course that's already being taught at that university, and they are transferring it into the massive open online platform. 
So yeah. I wonder if if that's it. But I have seen some courses that are created just for those MOOC platforms, and they tend to have some exciting names. I wonder if it's part of the marketing of those courses, that they know they have to get as many people taking them as they can. They want to get that clout, and so they give them a little more of a special name. Well, I mean, you have to, I mean, it's marketing, right? Marketing's always part of it, but I think there is something different with MOOCs is that you can take a course from a well-known university and that brings a brand along with it. So you have like the double marketing efforts of the class itself being marketed. And then on top of that, the name of the university comes from being marketed. And then it's also the fact that you will have access to education that was previously unavailable to you outside of like what, like YouTube videos. I mean, this is stuff that you couldn't really get with the exception of programming, which you can learn programming on the internet without having to resort to any of these things because there's a million guides for programming. Yeah, you make a good point, guys. Marketing is especially important in these platforms because there's so much competition. It's not like you're competing with you know, a few neighborhood schools or it's not like you're competing with some schools of choice or preferred schools. Now you're competing with every university potentially in the entire world. So you really have to prove to your audience that this is the class that they want to be spending time on, not a different one that teaches almost the same thing. And it's not just competition with other MOOCs either. It's also competition with literally all of the fonts of information on the internet. You have to make sure that you're getting people who, one, are going to be dedicated enough to actually sit through the whole program, and two, that they're actually coming for the right reasons. They want to learn the specific things. They know what they're getting in for. And three, you're pulling them away from all the other sub-sources of information on the internet so they come to you, because that's a dedication of time and resources that they need to do. And all the MOOCs, for the most part, are free. They're all, they, they've had these certificate programs now that allow you to get something, something you can use to prove you completed a MOOC, so you, something to show that you have skills. But even in the realm of having the skills, MOOCs aren't faring too well. So I've been reading a book called The Rise of the Robots by Martin Ford. I think it came out a few years ago, 2014 or so. And the, audio, the audiobook's from 2015, that's what I know, because I'm listening on Audible. The book's about the fact that, you know, the... Automation is coming, how society is getting prepared for it, and some of you know, the things that go around that, why it's happening, what we can expect, looking into the short-term future and the long-term future. And one of the things he talks about is MOOCs and how they're changing dynamics of higher education. And the thing is, right now, at least in the short term, they have kind of failed to do that, which people were very excited about them as having this gigantic possibility. They've kind of failed to live up to that for the time being. For one, as I mentioned before, most people who sign up for these classes don't even see a single lesson. They just sign up. They go in, they maybe see one, and then that's it. Then, you know, the average course completion is 4%. That's nothing. Imagine a 4% completion on a college course in real life. That'd be garbage. And then on top of that, you think, well, at least it's attracting the poor, you know, you're getting people who may not have the access to higher education taking these courses and learning. But even then, about 80% of users already have college degrees. So you're not even getting people who don't already have access to higher education. These are people who already have the motivation to for higher education and have the resources, apparently, to do it. 
and they're just getting additional uh, knowledge out of it. Luis, I have a question. Is Where did this information actually come from? Is it based on all MOOCs? Is it a specific platform? Well, to answer your question, I believe the author of the book uh, was referring to Coursera. That's where that original figure comes from. But he uses different sources uh, in terms of what MOOCs are being referenced when it talks to the data. But overall, it's just reflective of MOOCs in general. And I think more tellingly is that the people who do do the MOOCs tend to fare worse when it compared to people who do traditional education. Uh, there was a study, they well, rather not a study, but there was a course that was held, I forget in what universities, but two universities worked together with a MOOC to give students who were doing the MOOC the chance to take the class alongside people who were doing it in real life. And the people who were doing it in real life were paired far better in terms of their actual grades than the people doing the MOOCs. So it's it may be that MOOCs are not currently at the place they need to be to really disrupt higher education, and it may take some more time before they can get there. What concerns me about online learning, and this is related to what you're saying, Luis, this low percentage of completion, online learning requires people to be self-driven. And when you are coming from different cultures, different contexts, different parenting styles, every part of your environment and background and biology and genetics and just the person, you, the choices you make as a person, People who succeed in online learning tend to be those who are more self-driven. They're self-motivated. They can find and be interested in and complete anything. It's like the old saying that many people start and few people finish. This is one of my concerns with online learning in general, that residential learning forces someone to show up and to be there. And this is similar to exercise programs and addiction recovery programs where they have you come in person, show up in person, speak in person because it's forcing you to be engaged. When you have an online learning program, you have a, maybe a timeline that you have to set yourself. You maybe have to piece together courses to make a course load that you think is, is right for you. There's very little guidance on that. I think a lot of MOOCs address this by uh, requiring that you complete a quiz or talk in a forum every week so that you have these deadlines that happen, but they're still not motivating people enough or helping people enough with the learning process. I mean, a lot about online learning is not just the content you have to learn. It's also learning how to learn. And college helps students learn how to learn at the same time that they're learning content, whereas online learning doesn't help as well the students learn how to learn. They don't have career counselors or academic counselors talking to them about their progress. They don't have professors calling them in and talking to them about uh, a D they had on their midterm. In MOOCs, you have 10,000 students taking a course maybe. And even if there's a low percentage of them that get to week five, there's still a lot of those students and a professor can't pull one aside in office hours, especially if they live in a country where the time zone is completely off anyway. So uh, my concerns around online learning are pointing to maybe a future where things have to change. They have to take more of the, the pluses from residential learning. I would say that I agree 
for the most part. Main thing, I, I, one of the things I think is really important here is also the fact that people don't have to invest resources. And I think that's a huge driver because once you have invested the resources, then the sunk cost fallacy works in their favor where they think, well, I've already spent the resources. I might as well, right? You know, you're not, you're not going to waste that money, even though it's technically already wasted. If it's whatever happens after the fact, it's, it's already gone. You're not going to get your money back if you fail your classes, but you want to get the most for your, for your, for your, but your most bang for your buck. And that being the case, you might be more motivated as a result to actually engage with the, with the course load. And there's other factors, obviously, in college, like you mentioned, that are largely responsible for making people take these things seriously. And then there's also the fact that MOOCs don't have the idea, like, companies don't currently consider MOOCs as a, an equivalent to a college degree. You can, at least I haven't run into any examples of companies truly considering them on, this, on the same footing. So if you fail to get your MOOC certificates, it doesn't do anything. I mean, you're not going to not get a job as a result of it, right? But if you fail to get your college degree, that will, that's, the, which is now the equivalent of essentially a high school degree was, you know, a high school diploma was 20 years ago. Your college degree, your undergrad degree, is absolutely at least a bare minimum you need for most jobs, with a master's being today's equivalent to what used to be a college degree. So it's the higher education's changing a lot, and I don't think MOOCs are currently in a locate in a place for to really challenge them. And it's gonna take some time for them to really narrow down the tools that they're teaching and the way that they're teaching to make sure that one they can get more people through the programs effectively. They're teaching things that actual companies want to hire for or that are helpful in careers. And three, getting that recognition from companies and industries that MOOCs are able to compete on this same footing. And that's going to that's gonna be a while before that's the case, I think. So I was just thinking about the thing that you said, Luis, and how companies don't really find MOOCs to be valuable or the completion of certain certificates to be valuable for them. But I think I disagree. I've seen companies that actually develop their own MOOCs and use those training platforms to train their employees. And honestly, I don't really think that some companies care what kind of degree that you have unless, I mean, a lot of companies do because the type of work requires that knowledge and information and experience. But a lot of companies can train the people and can, while you're working side by side. I always challenge the idea of having to go to school for four years, learn about many different things, obviously focused on one specific field, but you learn a lot of different topics. I guess it's all foundational, I agree. But during that time, you forget a lot of the information you learn. You, you just simply don't use it all the time. So you just tend to forget it. I can see a world where potentially right out of high school, you start working. But when I say working, I mean like inputting 10 to 15 hours of actual work for a company and the other 35 or 30 hours a week, you would be in, in a classroom setting or maybe a MOOC setting where you're learning skills that you would need 
for a specific industry or company. So, and what would be great is potentially that that industry or that company can be funding the education of these students. So there'll be this like symbiotic relationship between education and industry, not not how it is right now, where education is separate and the industry is quite separate. You're right, Ray. There are a lot of people in the professional industries who are looking to learn. They're even expected to keep learning. And it's a way for them to also negotiate a raise, for example, or a uh, movement upward in, in their roles or job descriptions or titles. So there are a lot of people seeking extra learning. It's not only the fact that they're seeking extra learning because they want to raise or increase in wages, but it's actually more engaging in the job when you're learning on the job as well. Because when you're doing a specific project or task or role and you're not learning things that are new, it becomes mon- it becomes boring. I the agree. The job becomes boring. So you really want that new knowledge all the time. So I think if you can be working and going to school all the time simultaneously but limit the amount of work you're doing and limit the amount of school you're doing so you're not like overloading on either one i think that would be an ideal experience or situation that sounds very nice ray it sounds very nice the problem is you had that's a big ask for companies because now you're asking them to hire first off high school graduates which why do they need them i mean yeah mcdonald's might but like why are a bigger companies using them? My point is valid, though, right? So yes, your like, your point is valid, yeah. but I I would say the following: one, companies don't really want to hire high school students for the most part, and in fact, the jobs that would go to high school students are getting automated very quickly. So then, why do you want them? Second, if you're going to invest the resources into someone in the hopes that after a certain period of time they'll be educated enough to do a higher job then a 4% completion rate is not something you want to be seeing. Because that means that out of, if you invest in 100 kids, 4% of those are actually going to complete the program. That doesn't look great. So while what you're saying sounds great in theory, in actuality, the place that MOOCs are at right now, I'm not saying it's not possible in the future, the place they're at right now does not inspire confidence for such a system to develop. I think assuming that these are high school students taking college courses is also not necessarily correct. That when they do demographic surveys, a lot of courses, the people who take them, even when they're college level courses, are people who already have a college degree. So we have online courses sometimes serving the already educated who already love learning and they just want to learn more. So you have this kind of cycle going, which is really interesting. The other thing is high school students who haven't graduated yet. We're talking about sophomores and juniors. There was a homeschool student who actually built his curriculum with MIT courses. So before edX ever existed, MIT had open courseware, which was a way for them to post not the classes online, but they posted the syllabus any of the reading materials that were that could be shared without copyright problems, links, exercises, any videos they took, basically any materials from the course they would publish online. It just wouldn't be a course you'd take because the, the lectures might not be on there. 
uh, the this homeschool student took MIT courses throughout his entire education and ended up being admitted to MIT at age 15 because he had just done so well with all of these materials. His name was Ahan Rumta and he was accepted to the MIT class of 2019. So this is just a few years ago. So we see very different demographics taking courses online. Some people who are already educated and who will continue to be educated for the rest of their lives, which is what Ray's talking about, these people who love to be educated. And then you have high school students actually helping them themselves place better just by preparing themselves with these courses. But the people Luis is worried about, I'm thinking, are those in the middle. Those who have a, a, a high school diploma and maybe can't get into college or have circumstances that don't allow them to go to college. And can they use online learning to get ahead? Or is it really just for learning? Does it, does it show up on a resume or a CV and have any credibility? And I, I want to bring up something that Stephanie mentioned. And uh, she mentioned, you know, someone who's going out of their way and learning things, uh, not necessarily in the context of a course, but by learning things they find online. And I think this is really the thing that I find more interesting. Because while MOOCs are still struggling a bit, they are kind of sticking to the ideas of higher academia to a degree, right? You know, you have your professor, your classroom, et cetera, et cetera. What I think is something that we should be talking about is all the ways we learn online outside of that structure. You're right, Luis. That's actually really important. We've talked about the different ways MOOCs are organized and how they can be important for people in the future of education. But the fact that you can still access information online in different ways and that can still be counted as educating yourself. In the second half, we'll be talking about the more generic ways that we can access information to educate ourselves online. Education. One of humanity's greatest ideas, it lets us better ourselves by exposing us to wondrous ideas, granting us new skills, and letting us safely explore entirely new worlds. While MOOCs make open classrooms to all, they fail to address vital areas of the school experience, like field trips. This is why we at Positive Feedback Loop are proud to announce a truly unique partnership with Bartholomew's School of Imagination to bring you Piflorations, the first ever massive online open field trips. Our cutting-edge program will perfectly simulate the experience of traveling to and from a local landmark or museum, all with realistic travel times. Wait for the school bus to show up while our artificial intelligent assistants spit gum wads into your hair. Get a science museum tour guide who is on the verge of quitting her job to pursue her dream of being in a rock band. Lose track of the group and get lost in the terrifying mummy room of the ancient art wing. All this and more from the safety of your desk for the low price of an internet connection and a fully updated Oculus Rift. Piflorations. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that commercial break. And today we've been talking about MOOCs and online education. And the last thing that Luis brought up was the fact that there is so much educational material online already, not in the form of MOOCs, but just in various other forms. Yeah, actually, this is something that I found 
amazing about the way that the internet has developed. And although it's, I don't think people take advantage of it the way they should, the number of high quality materials out there for learning just about anything is incredible. I mean, just even looking at YouTube alone, you can look at so many dedicated channels that are just there to make learning about complicated topics accessible. You got things from your crash courses, your CGP grades, your uh, Kurzgesagt, which is another fantastic channel that does a lot of like, a lot of these channels also have like animation and things like that to make it really easy to get these complicated topics and talk about really big questions. I know until recently, PBS had a, had a bundle of shows, so I think they shut those down uh, just recently. There is a lot. There is a lot out there. Uh, oh, Extra History is another one. Not all of these are by people who are masters in their field, so they have to be taken with some salt. But honestly, the fact that they exist and that they can be corroborated against by other shows that are doing the exact same material sometimes, and you can check it to see if they have a different take on it or if it's the same or what can you learn about it and get you really engaged with the material is amazing. And I I wish I I had taken the time before this to quantify the amount of this stuff that I consume on a regular basis because it is insane. Right. There is a lot of this information, but like you said, not all of it, is, not all of it is accurate potentially. And That's how true. can you differentiate what is accurate, what is not accurate. When I go to an accredited university, I'm basically assuming the things that professors are informing us or teaching us are facts. It's, it's basically true. When I'm learning about calculus or physics and the theories behind it and the history behind it and how to calculate certain problems, I'm not questioning the process. It's, it's very much true to me. But when I do it, when they when I see videos online of these things and some problems being solved. So I don't know if it's trustworthy information. And I wonder if in the future there'll be some way to use technology to fact check all these videos or claims through AI or through machine learning or something like that. Well, I brought up YouTube, but YouTube is also a, a fantastic source for terrible information. I remember watching, uh, like a long time ago, watching coworkers huddling over a computer because there had was a this my a friend of mine at my last job had just really gone down the rabbit hole of the internet and had discovered just a mountain of videos trying to show that Beyonce was had been taken over by by Satan and that there was a massive conspiracy to hide this. I mean, you could see it if you just slowed down videos of her performances enough. You could see Satan entering her body. That was like th that was the level of insanity that you could find, and that's just a small, tiny tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more in there. So yeah, you're right to be concerned that a lot of information is not gonna be factually accurate, and that's why you gotta do your due diligence, right? Keep reading, keep watching, make sure that if there are, if there are sources, you follow up on the sources, and you don't just let them lie there. If someone says that I got this from this place, you check up that place to see if there's, you know, what that actually tells you. If it's not in a format that makes sense, and who are the people who are teaching you? Know what they can know about and what they don't. What they're qualified to teach you about, right? If you're learning, if you're watching a channel is just a hobbyist 
talking about it. Okay, well then keep that in mind when you look into it and then maybe use that video or that source as inspiration to look further into the topic, but not as the last word on the topic. Right, I see your point, but maybe the idea of these traditional institutions and colleges and universities, their function is to filter out all the noise. So we're actually paying for them to filter out all the information because anyone can go to not just YouTube, like you said, or Wikipedia, or Reddit, which is, or, or Reddit, sites, or yeah. right. There's tons of articles and publications. And the way we used to do this is we used to go to a library and look at the Dewey Decimal System and find the right encyclopedia to learn about the specific topic. So there was always this like availability of information, but the delivery of the information has changed dramatically now that we can like click on control F and look through an entire book to find the specific sentence that we were looking for, as opposed to previously, you might have to like flip through many pages or maybe read a whole chapter to find exactly what you're looking for. Now it's a simple control F. You can Control F the entire internet with Google, right? And when I say Control F, that means it's a it's a find function, right? Command F or whatever it is. But the idea is access has been given to us. But with that access, there's also a plethora of garbage, garbage, and hidden in the garbage is really good, solid information. So how do we get that really good information and dig through it? Dig through the internet to find that information. Ray, when you mentioned control F, you know, finding some part of a book that may be relevant to what you're looking for, information you need. A lot of people do this and with the internet they find pieces of information, blog posts that belong to a, a whole blog narrative. This modularization of content is concerning because we're not taking in content in the entire context of the story. So you could read online maybe a page or a chapter, um, what would be considered a page or a chapter of a book, but you're not reading the whole book. So you have students who are not reading an entire story or thinking about information and how it fits into long form. And this modularization of content, we're taking in education in some sort of piecemeal way and is this really a good way to take in information? I think this also happens when we read the news and this is partially why news consumption is becoming a problem. When we had newspapers we had the opinion section was physically separate from unbiased journalism on the front page or other pages and so you could tell the difference from someone who was expressing their opinion versus real reporting on on factual events. Now with the internet you go to the New York Times online and you may be linked to an article and if you're not paying attention it could be journalism or it could be an opinion page and people can't tell the difference so when somebody's making an opinionated comment they think this is this is fact this is being reported and so Americans are having a harder time understanding if they're learning fact or if they're being told a biased opinion. I'm not sure I agree in terms of the newspaper specifically, mostly because online, well, some some newspapers, not, not so much, but 
like the more respectable ones that have been around for a long time, they tend to have a pretty well-established different sections on the website. And even if you're linked to it, you can just look up what section you're in. It doesn't take that much effort. It's just that people tend to have a tendency to just look at the headlines rather than go to the actual article. How many times do people just see the headline that a friend shares and then don't even click on the link to go where it's where it says and like read what it says? And I think we have lost context to a degree. We no longer take context into account. We just see the thing, take it at face value and move on with our lives. And that's a big issue. And that's something we need to make sure that we're relearning. And that's why when I was saying things like, look, you got to look at who's telling you the information. And while the information could still be helpful as a starting point, if they are not experts or they have, you know, maybe they might be biased. If you use it for the purpose of using it as a inspirational source for for the research or as a starting point to fact check against, that's fine. I don't. I think that's that's a good use of that source. But if you're using it as the end all be all of information and then you stop there, I remember humans have really really poor source memory, and this is a huge problem for us. Source memory is specifically where humans remember where they got their information from. Right, and this happens to us a lot of times. Where uh, we'll be talking about a, a, a topic, someone will bring up a topic, and then we'll say, "Oh yeah, so I saw that 50% of this happens in this place," and then people will say, "Oh, where'd you get that?" And you'd, you'd say, "Oh, I think I read it somewhere." When in fact, a friend told you. Right, that happens all the time because human memory is fallible, and when we don't take the context into account and we don't look further into things, we run the risk of that source, that context being stripped away and replaced with something more robust in our heads where it becomes more trustworthy than it should be. And then it becomes part of our worldview because now it's just accepted information that gets taken into how we see the world. And then once it's it's there and it's part of our worldview, it's not changing anytime soon. So we need to be very, very careful when we approach new information on the internet and we need to teach people the right ways to do so. And although Ray brings up systematic approaches and things like that, yes, there are algorithms that do try to, I mean, at Google and Facebook have been trying to find things that, you know, identify fake news and and fake news here being defined as literally false, not biased. Biased news is not fake news. Fake news is fake. That is to say, untrue. Anyways, that aside, there are algorithms that are being made to identify these things and to try to pinpoint them, but it's so difficult because where it, it all comes down to the sources, right? Where is it coming from? Where's the data coming from? Is there nowhere it's coming from? Is the algorithm going to track down each and every avenue or maybe someone's the original source? How does the algorithm know if the original source is wrong? Maybe someone just made up something and then it got quoted by a bunch of other places. So that's not something that I think can be systematized that easily. I think it's the onus is on people. And right now we are failing to be educated about it. And I mean, there is a lot of political things we could talk about right now that touch on this and I won't get into it because that's, this is not the right podcast for that. But I will say this is a huge problem that we need to think about and that we need to educate people on much better than we're currently doing. I agree. Um, And just bringing the conversation back to online education I want to pose a question. Do you think somebody who just finished high school can educate themselves enough for free online to 
be equivalent to a recent college grad intellectually to a recent college grad it's hard to say that you say intellectually i think intellectually if it's informational if education is about information then yes you could gain a lot online especially because a lot of the materials i've used for my master's level classes have been links to online sources anyway there's so much online that you can educate yourself. There are books. I mean, Google Scholar will help bring up books. JSTOR has journals galore that you can research with. So if it's about information, sure. But education is more than information. Education is about learning how to work in teams. It's learning how to consult others, how to talk with professors and understand power dynamic of an administration it's about those extracurriculars, especially the academic clubs and groups that tie to your to education, as well as the social groups and clubs. Education is about the campus and the dynamic of different schools and the cross-departmental collaborations. It's about uh, students cross-registering in different departments as well, if they choose to. It's all of this, all of these elements of education that make residential education really great. The question is, can online learning, whether it's official online learning like a MOOC, or using basically the entirety of the internet to educate yourself, can those match what universities offer? But the other question on the other side of the coin is, do residential educational systems actually stay relevant enough for what online learning offers? Because online learning is offering so much value that residential education is lacking and is not doing well. Universities are trying to deal with this issue by creating hybrid classrooms. Well, part of it is you come in, but part of it is that you learn online. It's a mixture. Maybe there's value there. But that doesn't seem to really be getting at, at it either. So right now, we're at a real turning point. And there are a lot of experts now talking about this where they're saying online learning isn't there yet. And they're also saying residential learning is becoming less and less relevant. They're talking about different systems where they're not real fixed semesters or four years as we understand them now or classrooms as we understand them now. Education is changing in large part due to the internet. The question is how do we use that to make education better? So we talk about online learning, we talk about residential learning, it's really just learning and how do we use the tools? The classroom is a tool an online book is a tool, an online forum, discussion forum is a tool. Some are internet-based, some are have to happen in person, some are multimedia. But how do we make education better, especially when not all education is formal? What do you think, Luis? Do you think a high school graduate can bypass traditional college education and just go online and learn enough to be as intellectually equivalent to someone who actually attended the college. Oh, absolutely. But I think it depends on the field and I think it depends on what other skills you're willing to give up in a higher E, right? If the idea is that 
if we're talking about people learning things online on their own, yeah, I mean, there's tons of programmers who all they've done is they've just learned programming online and created a portfolio for themselves and then went into the market. And that's totally a viable option. Absolutely. But you give up something in terms of learning ways of thinking, which I think is one of the most important things about college and being exposed to different ways of thinking. That's, I think, what traditional education tended to do better than the uh, the alternative, which is just going online and looking things up because you don't have that environment that exposes you to things. That being said, you know, that advantage of college is quickly being shredded away because you do have access to so many other people on the Internet that have so many other different ways of, of viewing the world that may or may not get misguide people, but they do exist. Right. So I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not 100% on the on on board with the idea of higher education as being this immutable goal that we should aspire to keep because it does all these wonderful things for people. I think we need to look at the data. And the truth is that the things that it provides to people who come out of it, the value it provides is slowly being eroded by the fact that there is so much demand from businesses for more and more and more value from people before they're hired because automation is on their heels. So higher education is now becoming is, is having is now competing for kind of the value of the actual name itself of where you graduated from a lot more rather than the actual content of what you learn. So universities that tend to have more recognition more recognition are therefore much more sought after. I mean, and that's always been the case, but now that recognition is increasingly becoming the only thing that stands out compared to the actual content of what you can learn because you can learn that stuff elsewhere. And it might not be enough in terms of like a market because, you know, there's automation that's coming up. So that's a, kind of a weird cycle we're in. And it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. I don't know. Honestly, to answer that question, I don't know. And it's going to be, I think that's going to be a future worth looking into yeah that's really interesting and you're right there is this automation era that we're entering and we've been entered into uh, for a while now but i wanted to address one thing that you did mention Luis, and you said you can become a programmer just by learning online and that's i think that's true that is one field that i think that you can become an expert in just by educating yourself online but there are fields such as chemistry or engineering or biology where a lot of, or even like sociology, I think, where you need the interaction of being in the lab or interacting with different human beings and yes. having conversations. So that's not going away, I think, absolutely anytime soon. Like you really sometimes just need to watch a, re a chemical reaction happening in order to understand that a video may be good, but you won't be able to smell it or you won't be able to like feel the temperature and things like that. So. Yeah, we still have a long way to go before we replace the traditional educational system. But however, I think that these online systems are moving forward. I think that there are a lot of positives. There are a lot of drawbacks, but over time, we'll be able to deal with them. And uh, with that, we'd like to conclude this episode of the PFL podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, you can follow us through Facebook, Twitter, and subscribe to us on SoundCloud. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, we've been getting a lot of great messages. And as always, stay, stay crazy. crazy.
Education. One of humanity's greatest ideas. It lets us better ourselves by exposing us to wondrous ideas and letting us safely explore entirely new worlds. This is why we at Positive Feedback Loop are proud to announce a truly unique partnership with Bartholomew School of Imagination to bring you Piflorations. Wait for the school bus to show up while our artificial intelligent assistant spit gum wads in your hair.